this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Support for this week's show comes from The Great American Read. It's back. PBS has a list of America's 100 best-loved novels, and they need your help to pick number one. Go to pbs.org and see the list, vote for your favorites, and share with your friends. Join the conversation at hashtag GreatReadPBS, then join host Meredith Vieira for The Great American Read this fall, Tuesdays at 8, 7 central, starting September 11th on your PBS station. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 278, recording on Wednesday, September 12th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello, hello. We're going to hit 300, I guess around Christmas time. Where are we? It's September now. So we got yeah, yeah something like that. That'd be wild. It, that is wild. I can't quite mm. wrap my head around the number of hours of talking. <laughs> I was just uh, – this is uh, on the fly um, uh, uh, story that I just saw float by. Michelle texted it to me actually that Malcolm Gladwell is – and one of the producers of Slate's podcast, mm-hmm. ra- You know, their lineup are breaking off and forming their own company. Oh. Which I thought was super interesting. It, Gladwell's Revisionist History, if no one's ever listened to it, if you haven't listened to it, it is Gladwell. I don't love the production of it. Like it's it's neither just a red essay nor more of a, I don't know, radio la- – like it's, it doesn't feel like a native podcast form. It feels a little bit like a red essay with some sound effects and interviews built in, though it's gotten better over time. But it does – whatever else it does, it does gangbusters downloads. You know, Gladwell's got his a huge um, following – and, and and we were talking about oh a few episodes ago. Michael Lewis has a short mm-hmm. um, with Audible called "The Gathering Storm," and it occurred to me that the short audiobook and long reported podcast are on a collision. Like it's in, there's like a they weird are. middle space that they're sort of rushing toward, <laughs> like, and I'm not sure bonus? which is going to win. Like, is it a director's cut episode of a reported show? Or yeah. What? Yeah, it is interesting. And they like, they would end up in what, about a two hour? <laughs> right. Or An like, hour, like 90 minutes to two hour kind of spot. Or longer, shorter. I mean, you know, uh, for those of you who listen to Annotated, you know that it's 20-ish minutes. It's modeled more directly after Planet Money. And which is a 22 to 24 minute show. And then the radio, then you move up to the Radio Labs, This American Life's and that production style, which are 45 minutes to an hour. Mm-hmm. And those things are meant to follow the PBS, NPR, excuse me, NPR, PBS, uh, the NPR clock, which is beyond the scope of here, but to fill very specific broadcast needs in terms of hours and sizes of the of the files and uh, not the files but the size of the shows but we're in the we're in the wild west even more now than i thought we were of the early days of podcasting where the professionalization and fragmentation of recorded audio on demand recorded audio that's non-music i mean that's as general as i'm going to be because is it a podcast is it an audiobook is what i think is really exciting and and it does bleed into the book world because like if it's an audio 
is it an audiobook if there's no book version of it? Like it's just, then it's just a mm. then it's just a record just I'm using just then it's a recorded thing. And it's just interesting that we actually have this this other genre, this other medium that's not an audiobook, which is a red version of a, of a print or digital book. It's not just a book. It's not a chat show. It's not a radio show. It's this other thing that I think you might reasonably, and maybe I would, say is actually more akin to a book-like item than a radio-type item. You know, an hour and a half to two hours of spoken mm-hmm. word pre-recorded is an audiobook with no viable dead tree transcript. Um, anyway, I don't know. Just I, That got me thinking about Gladwell. And that space, the long-form essay writer who becomes basically an audio publisher of their own, which means they're a publisher of their own. I just find it fascinating. <laughs> that I don't, was I don't have another point to make. I'm just interested. That was a journey. It is interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I have nothing else to say about it. It's, it doesn't relate to anything we're going to talk about. <laughs> I didn't prepare you for it at all. Nope. You're welcome. I'm just letting it wash over me. I would like um, podcast at bookride.com. I am always listening to, and I don't listen to all of them con- on a continuing basis, uh, but for good ideas for annotated, and also I'm just a fan of the genre of a produced of produced podcast series. If you like them, if you listen to them out there, this is a good audience to ask since you're already listening to a podcast, but uh, email me, podcast at bookride.com. And if I find some gems or things I haven't heard of that are especially good, I'll share them uh, in some future episode. But Great. Let's go on to what's new, cool, and we're talking about in the world of books and reading. But before we do that, let's do a sponsor. Upgrade Soul is a sponsor by Ezra Clayton Daniels. So here's, here's what it's about. Sponsored by Lion Forge. For their 45th anniversary, Hank and Molly Nanar decide to undergo an experimental rejuvenation procedure. I mean, as you do. But their hopes for youth are dashed when the couple is faced with the results. In Upgrade Soul... The McDuffie Award-winning creator Ezra Clayton Daniels asks probing questions about what shapes our identity. Is it the capability of our minds or the physicality of our bodies? Is a newer, better version of yourself still you? Upgrade Soul is in stores now from Lion Forge. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a graphic novel, just so you know. I, they didn't put that in the talking points there. Uh, but it's out now. No, it is not out now. It's out September 18th. We're doing multiple spots over time. For some of the spots, it'll be out now. For our spot, it's coming September 18th. That's Upgrade Soul by Ezra Clayton Daniels. I took a look at the art. Really interesting looking title. Uh, So you can take a look at there. Link in the show notes. All right. I guess we're going to talk about Barnes & Noble on the top of the show for like the foreseeable. And I mean. Forever. uh, Yeah. I had this is where we live. I actually I get a I get a physical print publishers weekly in the mail every week, mm-hmm. and I read this article with pen in hand. I circled some stuff. Did you? Oh. You, you, you clearly had some stuff in mind. Yeah, Who, I mean, you lead I have, off? want me to go first. What do you I have do? some things highlighted. Well, I'll say like right. we have a lot of interesting bookstore related news yes, this week, we do. and this is maybe it's the least interesting, but also the one that we are compelled to keep following yeah, the know. story. My note in our agenda says for some reason Barnes and Noble sees better <laughs> times ahead. <laughs> A very kind headline from Publishers <laughs> well, Weekly. You know, Jeff, I'm known for my generosity of interpretation. <laughs> and what's in our interpretation here is that Publishers Weekly doesn't want to piss off Barnes and Noble <laughs> saying, well, it's so bad, it could only get better. I mean, that's, that's the right. other way of reading that, right? Um, 
So the, I mean, the first line, despite another quarter in which sales fell and losses increased, Barnes and Noble executives suggested in a conference call, uh, analyzing its first quarter results, that improvement could be coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could is very important and is different than actually seeing better times ahead for real reasons. Um, but Lynn Riggio pointed to improved sales trends during the current quarter um, and or during the recent quarter that have extended into their second quarter as one reason for their optimism. He said that they have, quote, finally stopped the bleeding with respect to our comparable sales decreases. So um, that then gets spun into being confident that the momentum is going to carry forward. Like we should say, they're still, sales are still like, not great. They're down. They're August. They're down. Yeah, they're down. Um, yeah. The comp store sales were down in August only by 0.8%. So it's not down, you know, 6% like they have seen uh, in June or 4.5% like they saw in July, but still down. Um, I guess the ship is edging towards being pointed in the right direction, but it's still not pointed. I, I in don't the right see it direction. though because like. The, they're they're forecasting an increased operating loss in Q1 2019 over 2018. I, I don't get it. Like, you know, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics, and then there's publicity spin, like which is a, mm-hmm. like a fourth category of truth. But right? There's like I just the, don't get the it. things people say on these quarterly yeah. report, earnings, conference calls, and um, hmm. they did give specific commentary about some of the Barnes and Noble developments upon which we have commented yes. over time, which I thought was interesting. Maybe the the strongest, most definitive one <laughs> was about the uh, five bookstores that featured restaurants that opened mm-hmm. over the last units of time that I can't remember. Uh, Rigio said that although the top line is good at the restaurants, the bottom line is awful. <laughs> uh, noting that BN doesn't have the res- expertise to operate restaurants. You know, sometimes you call it right and it's sad when mm-hmm. you do. I don't feel good about that. The top line is good, meaning they're making money, but the profit is terrible. So they're they're taking money in, but they're paying more money out, presumably what that means. They are opening new prototype stores um, that all will have cafes, but small overall footprints that range from 8,000 square feet to 14,000 square feet. So quite a bit smaller. Um, I once knew the average, but I've I've long forgotten what the the old style Barnes and Noble would be. Um, They don't want to cut their dividend. I think that would be, again, it's companies. Once you start paying a dividend, you hate to cut it. It's a real bad sign. A lot of your investors will leave, but it does operate. It does offer cash flow. They're not going to do that. I'm putting a dividend clock. I'm setting it. Let's say right here. Where's my dividend clock? I'm starting that right here, getting that started. We'll see. I predict that will get cut at some point. Um, they're moving the nook fixtures at the front of stores around so that people can shop. I guess saying nook is a turkey. Let's put books up front where people might actually buy them. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. They acknowledge this technical glitch. Um, comp sales were down 7% and non-comp sales were down 3% in the first quarter. And Riggio says that some of the poor book performance was a technical glitch in rolling out its online order and pickup in store program at the beginning of the quarter and that they saw sales begin to improve when they corrected the glitch. But like these are the kinds of mistakes that you can't afford to make when you're no. in the position Barnes & Noble is in. I mean, look, they, they, they're getting rid of Nook. They don't like the restaurants. They're opening smaller stores. Um, 
streamlining and refocusing its gifts and stationary offerings will expand its edu- educational toys and games section to take advantage of the closure of Toys R Us. Might be interesting. I'm not sure. People will, it'll be hard mm-hmm. to communicate to people that already didn't go to Barnes & Noble that, hey, if you're looking for toys, go to Barnes & Noble. And frankly, the ones around here have pretty good toy sections. I go with my kids. They're interested in a lot of yeah. things. It's it's pretty good. Um, this feels like a mess. You know, I, there's no, it's a death by a thousand cuts. It feels it, like, I It don't really know. is. They're, they're, uh, Chief Merchandising Officer Tim Mantell also is like, we're committed to holding more events like the Chainwide Book Club, which, okay. Um, it's yeah. a more robust publishing schedule, should also help customer traffic. And I'm not sure what that means. Dang it. Like, I was going to ask you more, what that meant because I didn't know what that meant. Like, are, is that actually happening? If you're in publishing and you know, like, are more books actually being published this year? Is the schedule more robust? Are there more things that booksellers can sell know. to customers. Um, that I have wondered about that. Like there are, have been a couple big books this year and r- this week with the Bob Woodward fear well, yeah, is out we'll and that's, that, you yeah. know, that's doing gangbusters. So maybe that's like robust could also mean more like very high appealing or high sales mm-hmm. options, but that that's the kind of thing you can't predict or rely on. Like, you know, you can know, uh, oh, all right, we're going to get a new Dan Brown book in two years, so we can count on some sales for that. But it seems right. unwise to me to plan a lot of business around the publishing schedule. I mean, it's definitely true on the adult fiction side, especially. We haven't had a, a, a tangible hit in a while. Like, really, Girl with the Train? I mean, Gone Girl, that the Gone Girl, Girl with the Train train is long... <laughs> out of the station. I don't know where I'm going. With, but, oh boy. <laughs> but we haven't, there hasn't been, you know, I've looked at the bestsellers of late and it's, I don't know, nothing really stands out um, on the adult yeah, there fiction hasn't been market. Run the nonfiction has been title. strong. This The Woodward book, mm-hmm. I mean, we'll get to that in a second, but like that looks to be a strong performer. Um, I think that's tough to hope that publishing, which you're already underperforming, Right. Remember that we've talked mm-hmm. about this. Publishing is growing a percent and a half year over year. So if you're underperforming that, why would you? You need them to get better for you to get better. That just feels like the wrong causality there. Um, and more exclusive and signed editions for customers to buy. This I think that's the one I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. That's that's one that you can only get there. On the other hand, Amazon has a lot of leverage, and I know I've heard tell I should say that Amazon doesn't like it when they don't have something someone else does and they'll retaliate, retaliate's the wrong, but they'll, they will encourage their Respond. partners to make it. Well, you know what? Why give Barnes and Noble this thing? Right. Why don't we get it? Uh, what do we get? And then it's sort of a we arms race of exclusivity. Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. I don't know if that's a sustainable thing. The, 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 I think the takeaway for me is we need more people in the doors. And we don't know how to do it. Yeah, I think so too. And to pivot just a little bit to the follow-up that they do also on this yeah. lawsuit that's going on with Demos Parneros, who they recently fired as CEO. Um, on this call, Riggio called the lawsuit a smokescreen, saying it's um, Parneros wanting to extort money from the company and reiterating that he was fired because of sexual harassment and bullying behavior. And then Riggio said that both he and the board of directors have great faith in the management team who came under withering criticism in the lawsuit. And that was a really interesting part of the lawsuit that Demos Parneros filed was all of the stuff that he alleged about what was going on um, with Lynn Riggio and with the management team at Barnes & Noble. And I wonder, 
I'm trying to be generous. I wonder if some of that criticism is valid, you know, mm. real based on fact, things that happened, but Barnes and Noble is refusing to acknowledge it or can't ref- can't acknowledge it because they don't want to like validate anything in the Parneros yeah. um, right. lawsuit. Like this, you know, it, it's like kind of a, it could be kind of a cover up situation, but that would not ultimately benefit Barnes and Noble either. Like it's possible that mm. the source is a bad apple. We don't know. Barnes and Noble is saying he's a bad apple, but some of the things he is saying could still be true. Um, and if there is truth in there that Barnes and Noble is not looking at about their management team and about the way that they're functioning, ultimately ignoring this would not yeah. be a great choice. So I just, that kind of raised my, like that he sort of, Riggio, especially going out of his way to um, say this, either all the withering criticism was a mess and he's just encouraging everybody. Like we have faith in the team or there could be some truth there uh, mm. and not looking at it would be not great. So I just wondered, no, of course, obviously like no way to get that answer, but this is a question I have. <laughs> right. And I mean, who believe, I mean, it's hard to know, but like, so Riggio says he has confidence and the board has great faith in their current management team of which they are a part. Like it's kind right. of like a Cerberus eating its tail. Like, okay, mm-hmm. if you didn't have great faith in them, they wouldn't be there because Lord knows you guys don't mind giving of a CEO if you don't like them. Right. So I, it's just, <laughs> I, it's again, I, I would, that's, that falls into these, what else would you expect them to say? Right. Like, of but, course they're saying this, but, but I think you're right in this regard, which is, Neither Barnes and Noble's response nor Parneris's lawsuits need be a hundred percent true or a hundred percent false. Like there's some topography there right. um, of what might be right. Relevant. There could be some nuggets of relevant truth, and like I have yet to see Barnes and Noble acknowledge something that seems to me like yes, we're acknowledging like a real cause of these problems we're having. Yes. Um, so if, if I'm at this point, very ready to believe that the management team, Reggio included, is the problem. That this like group who are right. reaffirming their faith in essentially themselves um, mm-hmm. are the issue. Yeah, I mean, the, the 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 bearing of the lead here is we're getting our lunch eaten by Amazon, and you would think. If I were an investor at Barnes Noble, which I'm not, unless maybe one of my index funds has some Barnes Noble, boy, I hope not right now as I think about it. I don't <laughs> want any part of that. Like, if you were actually th- wanting to know how Barnes Noble, they have to say, how are we going to get people to spend more money with us and not an Amazon? That seems to me the central question. Maybe their thinking is implicit in they get them into our stores to spend money is that answer, but why are they going to your stores for book clubs and mm-hmm. uh, games? Right. Rough. It seems rough. Mm, um, it does. So I don't know. I mean, I guess I would like to. I would like them to see to be able to name the ineffable here, which is we're in a battle to save our company from Amazon completely eating our lunch and becoming the de facto hegemon in the world of print book sales in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And here's what we think we need to do to do that. But it's not there. You know, I think the we have a problem. We we acknowledge we have a problem. Step of getting better right. doesn't feel like you know every, the management team's fine. This lawsuit's garbage. The bleeding is stopped. We have some ideas. Like I don't feel like excuse making to me. Yeah, it's does. like hand waving. Mistakes were made. You know, yeah, sort of pa- passive right. voice language where like what are the mistakes and who made them? 
mm-hmm. and how are you going to correct that? And yeah. I don't feel like we've actually seen that. I do not see better times ahead immediately for Barnes and Noble, Jeff. We, we've said it before. I mean, maybe, maybe by April, this is it, by April 30th, 2019, there will be a net increase in overall store count from right now, which mm-hmm. is interesting. So maybe that'll be another point to see. Okay. They've, they've cut what they think are the most underperforming stores. They've, they've turned towards growing the store count, albeit smaller footprints. Is that strategy of continuing to grow? I think it would be interesting if they came out on the top and said, we think our strategy is to have more and smaller stores and better locations. That would make a little bit of sense to me to lead with that, mm-hmm. right? It's like yeah. our old big battleships are in the wrong spots. We need fewer aircraft carriers and we need more smaller naval vessels. What's next? A destroyer, <laughs> a minesweeper? I don't know. Tugboats? Didn't uh, plan out Shout out to Devin here. for a tugboat, tugboat uh, <laughs> reference. Um, so that would be interesting. More, smaller. Um, mm-hmm. that would be, or we need to be able to turn over and make our stores more responsive to the local community's needs or what they're interested in, something like that. But like, this is, we need to get a couple more book clubs and have more games and we're going to stop the restaurant disaster. That That's what the, that's what their plan is right now. That's mm-hmm. what the plan is. It's, it's, uh, that's rough. It's a rough spot. Uh, anyway, let's do another sponsor cause we want to get to some more bookstore. We're going to cross the pond, as they say, um, in bookstore land. This episode is sponsored by The Real Lolita by Sarah Weinman. So here's the deal. Super interested in this book. Very few readers of Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita know that the subject of the novel was inspired by a real-life case, the 1948 abduction of 11-year-old Sally Horner, weaving together suspenseful, a suspenseful crime narrative cultural and social histories and literary investigation, the real Lolita tells Sally Horner's full story for the very first time. Drawing upon extensive investigations, legal documents, public records, and interviews with remaining relatives, Sarah Weinman uncovers how much Nabokov knew of Sally Horner of the Sally Horner case and the efforts he took to disguise that knowledge during the process of writing and publishing Lolita. Sally's story, Sally's story echoes the stories of countless girls and women who never had the chance to speak for themselves. By diving deeper into the publication history of Lolita and restoring Sally to her rightful place in the lore of the novel's creation, the real Lolita casts a new light on the dark inspiration for a modern classic. Weinman, some of you may know her, follow on Twitter. She's a true book, book person. She's edited two anthologies of crime writing and covers book publishing for Publishers Marketplace. She also reads a ton a fixture in the mystery and thriller community for a long time. She stumbled across Sally's story a few years ago and became determined to investigate this link between Lolita and Sally. This year, I didn't know this, is the 60th anniversary of the American publication of Lolita. It's a true crime book, a publishing mystery book, and the story of Sally Horner is laid alongside the story of Lolita itself. That's The Real Lolita by Sarah Weinman. Go check it out. All right. All right. Let's go to jolly old England, Let's Jeff. go. Yeah, tell me about this one. So Waterstones, which we both 
sort of smacked our foreheads when we were reading this story um, Mm -hmm. because we did not think of Waterstones as a potential buyer for Barnes and Noble in the, who is the potential buyer who backed out game that we've been playing. Um, Waterstones is buying a small historic family owned book chain called foils in a deal that they build as an antidote to the siren call of Amazon. Right. Uh, So I I had never heard of foils. Had you? Do you know? I have heard of foils. Yeah, um, it has a famous branch at Charing Cross in London. Mm -hmm. I think I was surprised to hear that's really only seven locations. I thought Waterstones. I thought it was more of like a a Barnes and Noble and Border situation, like you know where Waterstones are the Barnes and Noble and and Foils are the Borders, except Mm -hmm. you know a Borders that exists. Um, I guess that's where that metaphor falls apart. So when I when I saw Waterstones, I was oh that's a big deal, and then I saw that there's only seven stores. Yeah. Like, okay, I again I'm no expert in the uh, UK high street retail high street. I'm enough to use high street uh, retail <laughs> market, but I was surprised it was only that many stores. I was also surprised a little bit that Waterstones only had 283 stores. Again, I'm forgetting just size difference between the U.S. and the U.K. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the biggest book chain, so it really is the Barnes & Noble of the U.K. Um, But consolidation there, I think that's another way of thinking about Barnes & Noble is maybe we had it backwards with a couple of these. You know, I don't know what Barnes & Noble's cast position, but would Barnes & Noble be well served to say go buy half-price books, go down market, down market meaning like, you know, outlet stores, things like that, to go into the locations. You know, I've read several stories of late about how Dollar Tree stores are doing very well um, for Verizon's reasons that are super exciting um, and happy-making, but people are looking to get cheaper goods, even undercutting the Walmarts and Targets of the world. And maybe that would be one way for Barnes & Noble. You know, we sell basically our print books at retail price, but maybe a half price books or books a million or you know chains of used bookstores maybe that's the way to diversify um and get a little bit bigger get some more scale at a not a huge price so that that's mm-hmm. what got me thinking about it too uh i don't know yeah, i was go ahead well i was i was thinking about like since this is a small essentially a small set of independent bookstores um that they yes. acquired by acquiring foils when we've noodled on, you know, Waterstones has opened some stores that are yeah. operated by Waterstones but branded differently and in neighborhoods where they're presented to look like indies. So it makes sense to me that Waterstones is exploring this space of having some smaller stores, having what have been previously independent bookstores. And I, w- I was thinking, like, I wonder if Barnes & Noble has considered that route of rather than consolidating, like you were talking about, of getting like buying books a million, has Barnes & Noble considered, I don't know that the owners of these stores would be open to mm-hmm. it at all, but like Joseph Beth Booksellers, there are several of those in the yeah. South, um, a family of independent bookstores. There are several books and book stores also in the South and in the Grand Caymans um, mm-hmm. that like, I think that's seven locations, maybe nine. Um, those books and books that like what I know of Mitchell Kaplan who founded them is that he would not want to sell to a chain. But I wonder Mm -hmm. if Barnes and Noble has thought about that or even if they didn't buy a chain of them, what if Barnes and Noble purchased a couple dozen struggling indie bookstores or a couple dozen thriving independent bookstores? Like if you could find the bookstore owners who were open to it, Mm -hmm. what Barnes and Noble like 
Barnes & Noble in its current state, I don't believe would conduct good or interesting experiments with those places. But if Barnes & Noble had their heads around it, it would be interesting to see what they would do with, you know, the space and the existing communities around an independent store. Um, I think I like that as a thought experiment, but I don't want to experience it in real life. No. And I just don't know, like... Barnes Noble, are they any position to do any acquisition when they're bleeding money like this for starters? Second, there is some cultural, there'd be cultural resistance to, even if it made business sense, you know, the numbers added up for a small group or chain, you know, an independent store that has several locations. I think Barnes Noble will have to get an awful lot of those um, to make a difference. I was playing a game with the insiders during our monthly podcast chat, like what percent of print book sales do you think Barnes & Noble does? And long story short, it's about 23%. If I've done my math right, you know, we speculate, others have speculated Amazon's about 83%. So there's only 17% out there that, yeah. that are left. 6% or so is independent stores. So to, to increase their market share by 3%, Barnes & Noble would have to buy half of all independent bookstores in the U.S. Yeah. It, just, it just doesn't <laughs> seem like it's going to happen. Um, a lot of times, you know, in capitalist markets, I'm, I'm no, I'm no great expert in this, but sometimes what will happen is you get consolidation when there's a, the dominant player of the other players, you know, a duopoly versus a monopoly versus you know, real, a real robust ecosystem. Um, so, I kind of surprised a little bit that like half-priced books and books and books and books a million, there hasn't been more consolidation on that side. You know, roll all those up mm-hmm. into with Barnes and Noble. No one took borders, which was, I think, a mistake in hindsight. I don't know, yeah, again, the finances. But if there would be more of a Pepsi to the Coke here, I think mm-hmm. they'd have more shot. But now there's so there's so much ground to make up with not very much of the pie left. I'm really mixing my metaphors here. <laughs> a ground pie um, for everyone. Uh, that It's just very hard to see how an acquisition of any kind, mm-hmm. there's not one big piece to move. You'd have to do a lot of different pieces. Right. It just seems that'd be so hard to do. Yeah. I didn't think Barnes & Noble acquiring a bunch of indies would move their no, market share no, in no, any meaningful no. way. It would be interesting to see them, Yeah, a good version of Barnes & Noble. It would be interesting to see them try that, though. Um, it, it looks like this story. So oops. basically, Christopher Foyle, who is the heir to the original Foyle family, owns 65% of the company. And there's a little bit of reading between the lines here. So... It's contr- uh, Foils is controlled by its Monaco-based chairman. I don't know if anyone mm. knows what that means, but very wealthy and in abstentia, right? He says um, that Foils have been run by hired hands and with no apparent heir. That you know, he was ready to be done with it. So I don't know if it says anything about Foils' business. Often, family-owned companies, when they either sell or don't sell, it's not actually about underlying business conditions. It's you know, we're looking for a buyer. Maybe it was just the price was too good for Waterstones to pass up. Um, anyway, I thought it was interesting. There, mm-hmm. I'd like to know for those of you, especially in the UK, can you give me a little pro con for foils versus Waterstones? Like, do you like one better than the other? What's the relative merits of either? Is this story interesting to you, or it's it's a it's a nothing burger? I really don't know. Clearly, my radar was off about it, but there we go. Um, All right. Let's see. Let's see. While we're talking about bookstores, let's do a couple. There's a couple interesting things that happened. While we're over across the pond, um, a 57-year-old bookstore owner gave customers the chance to win his shop. It's called Bookends. It's in West Wales. Um, Gave customers a chance to win that shop along with with the contents of the store if they spent... $25 
20 pounds. Um, he's taking early retirement. He wanted to give it to someone who may not have usually had the chance to run their own business. And the winning ticket was put, picked by a Dutchman. Uh, oh boy. Sejan yeah. van Heerden. Um, Sejan van Heerden. I'm, I'm going with tried it. That. That I, well done. <laughs> well done. Just pronounce it like you know what you're doing. Uh, who's a sci-fi fan. He is going to be giving up his job in customer service to relocate to Cardigan in... Oh boy. He's going to relocate to the West Wales coast <laughs> to, mm-hmm. um, to run this bookstore that he won in a raffle. And... I just don't quite know what to think about this. <laughs> like, actually, I do know what to think about it. This has a lot to me of the markings of that romantic idea that people have about how they would mm-hmm. love to run a bookstore um, and that it would be lovely to sit around like reading all day and recommending books to people. But that if you are taking early retirement and you want to hand your bookstore down and you hand it down to someone who's randomly selected from a lottery and very likely has no experience running a business in general or a bookstore in particular, you're not really setting your legacy up for success. Very strange story. Um, I wondered, like, did he did he t- give did he open the books to this guy before he decided to relocate? Uh, it's kind of a it's it's like it's like I always thought you know when I was a kid I always thought you know Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is cool that Charlie wins the Chocolate Factory. I was like <laughs> I feel like it's harder than just not being a jerk to run a, a giant chocolate factory. You've got Oompa Loompa labor issues. <laughs> you know that, that Chocolate River right, doesn't was, look like the FDA would approve of that. Like, I, is this the I, seventh I person know. who won the lottery and the first <laughs> six saw the books and said no? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the lottery, the, the winner of the lottery is the one that doesn't have to take it. They, they get to just right. take their books and get out like, with it. Um, he's going to run it with a friend of his from Iceland. Only been running the store for four years uh, after working decades in the publishing industry. He said, I'd always thought Cardigan needed a bookstore. I can't believe it's named Cardigan either. I uh, needed a bookstore. And one night I was on eBay and I saw 18,000 books for sale. And it went from there. I feel like that's that meme of like step one by 18,000 books, step two, <laughs> question mark, step three, set up a book profit. for profit. Like there's a lot missing in this story. I'm fascinated. It's uh, so by inter- it. Like we should follow this and interview this person. Like, can you become a successful bookseller when you win your bookstore in a lottery? Yeah. <laughs> like I mean, all the best to is, him, but I have so many questions. It is tiny. Like there's, again, I tried to find some pictures. It's a little bitty like living room size store. Mm-hmm. I think it's mostly used books as far as I can tell. So maybe the the overhead is low and they make enough, but uh wow. Wow, that's incredible because there, there's the story of two guys basically here giving up their lives to open bookstores. It just happens to be the same store 5 years mm-hmm. apart yeah. from from different from different places. Oh, I'm pulling for it, but um, I'm pulling for it too. It's just yeah. wh- what, um, you know, I was going to make a joke so I could have a nice segue about, they should get a development deal for the movie about those two men. Uh, it does feel like a Michael sure pilot, it, right? Like you does. could see this, uh, starting mm-hmm. up, take me to the next, uh, maybe they want to pick this one up for the next story. 
Yeah. So yeah, for the realm of actual development deals that exist, this is really interesting. And the first of its kind that I've heard of, um, the owners of a bookstore of the Ripped Bodice in LA have signed an overall deal with Sony Pictures TV to develop projects based on their close relationship with romance novel authors and readers. Um, if you're not familiar, the Ripped Bodice is owned by Leah and B. Cook. Um, they are 26 and 28 years old rock on ladies. And the Ripped Bodice is the only romance exclusive bookstore in the US. And they opened in Culver City in 2016. And I think they did a Kickstarter in the run-up to the opening. It was very successful. They've been well-received and have become staples of Romance Landia and Mm -hmm. advocates for feminism and diversity within romance and within publishing in general. I think this is interesting and really smart. I hope, um, I like, I would like to watch this. Like I imagine it would be like younger with a bunch of how younger has a bunch of like sort of publishing references, like thinly veiled publishing references and thinly mm-hmm. veiled characters that are based on real authors or books that are based on real books in a fun, like winking sort of way. And the romance community is rife with people who like big, interesting people and personalities that would be great for this. Um, also, I think it's important that it's not just a caricature of a romance bookstore. These ladies care about romance and really understand the genre. So um, in other hands, there would potentially be the concern of poking fun at romance or someone you know, using the romance novel as a punchline, but I'm not so worried about that in this case. You know, I hope they get a boatload of money. Oh man, me too. I wonder... You know, romance is so popular. I wonder if it's enough to be an insidery kind of show. Like, what's the, there's so many outlets, and I'm sure they could find the right venue. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what the right venue would be. Is it, you know, like the younger kind? I mean, that's about publishing, but you don't have to be a publishing or book right. nerd to like it. This one feels like it might yeah. be a subset of that, I, or, or you know, slightly well, narrower I, I than or not. A, it's a really interesting kind of math to do because for younger, you're right. You don't have to be a publishing person to enjoy the show, but the inside jokes mm-hmm. of publish like are definitely for publishing. Like there's a very small group of people in the world who understand the publishing jokes on younger. Um, so if you follow a bunch of them on Twitter, like that's really yeah. fun. Um, but you know, how many general viewers of younger saw, um, P is for pigeon and knew that it was an H is for hawk, you know, or, (laughs) or, and a Sue Grafton pun at the same time. Like it's a a double entendre. Right. Yeah. There's right. There's so much going on there that, um, since romance is reader, since this is a reader facing Mm -hmm. kind of story about a bookstore, a romance bookstore, it's authors, romance readers. Um, you can imagine that like anyone who, is a passionate romance reader and romance readers tend to be more voracious than the average reader um, could get into this. So I actually think the funnel might be, wow, listen to me. I think the funnel might be wider (laughs) for for the ripped bodice, at least in terms of like the people who could recognize the inside baseball notes Mm -hmm. of the show. Um, Overall, like general enjoyability, who knows, like probably about the same as younger. I hope it would, I hope it'll be a great show, but I think more people could pick up on what's happening in a story that nods to romance authors and the romance community Mm -hmm. than could pick up on inside jokes about publishing. Yeah. Like I'd be curious to hear, there's not much here. There's a link in the show notes about like why this store 
like why why the Rome is it them they find compelling? Is it the story that's about romance? Is it it's a bookstore? Mm-hmm. Like there's just a lot of interesting things going on here because you'd think you could do the same kind of a show that's more of a general you know regular kind of independent bookstore and be more accessible. But mm-hmm. maybe that's bad in this market where you really want a core group to go watch it. And it doesn't. Mm-hmm. You, it doesn't have to be uh, CSI um, Inglewood. You know, it just needs to be a whole bunch of really. It needs. It needs a passionate core to sustain it. You know, like the league, which is about fantasy football. Like right. something mm-hmm. like that would probably work. But is it a Netflix show? Is it? Is it a, a Lifetime? Is it Paramount or one of these other kinds of things? I think that would be really interesting to find out. But yeah, I would this is interesting. love. To- yeah, I've been thinking about this kind of all day, and I would love to see it as a Netflix series. It also feels very of the moment, like two young women, yes. they're sisters, they take a feminist perspective to like the most put upon mm-hmm. genre um, that also happens to be the genre that is almost exclusively targeted to women readers and that has historically been on the leading edge of taking women's lives and interests and concerns and sexuality seriously. Like This is a moment for that kind of set up um, in in the world and also in entertainment, what the Koch sisters are doing is really important for the world of books and for romance. But it's a, I think it's a very compelling story. It would land very well right now. And like the all the little tropes that exist inside the romance community and the inside jokes that exist inside romance novels um, would also lend themselves really nicely to sort of repeating things right. across yeah. a series. That's right. I think it's really smart. It's really smart. And also like I don't want to watch the Go ahead. Oh sorry. No, go no, ahead. you go. I say I don't want to I don't want like the independent bookstore version of high fidelity. Like I no, think this is more no, interesting. No, no. Yeah. I, I was thinking I mean, I don't want I'm not trying to curse it, but it's like I thought oh, I'd gotten more signs of peak adaptation. We're to the point we're not even adapting books anymore. We're ad- adapting bookstores. <laughs> like that's how much that's how much d- uh, <laughs> appetite there is for material to turn into serialized television. Um, but best of luck to them, and we're going to be following that one really closely. If anyone knows yeah. more about that, you know, you can be a little birdie. We don't have to get we don't have to tell your name. Um, interestingly. Sony probably the execs at Sony found out about it, but likely because it did get a lot of national play. But have, the store happens to be a few blocks from the Sony lot, so it doesn't hurt hmm. uh, when you're down the block and you can be found. Um, let's do another sponsor and then do a couple All more right. things. Yeah, our last sponsor this week is The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton. Uh, It is called The Most Inventive Debut of 2018. This is a clever, mind-bending murder mystery that will leave you guessing until the very last page. And let's see, one of Stylist Magazine's 20 must-reads, a Harper's Bazaar pick, Marie Claire, Australia's 10 books you absolutely have to read. This has been everywhere. Here's the deal. At a gala party thrown by her parents, Evelyn Hardcastle will be killed. Again, she's been murdered hundreds of times, and each day, Aiden Bishop is too late to save her. Doomed to repeat the same day over and over, Aiden's only escape is to solve Evelyn Hardcastle's murder. However, nothing and no one are quite what they seem. It's a genre-bending debut. It's been described as Agatha Christie meets Groundhog Day with a dash of Quantum Leap. Uh, That's a whole lot of mm. things. It was a number one library reads pick as well as an indie next pick for September, 2018. And it's been featured all over the place. Um, so again, that is the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton. And you can find it wherever books are sold. Well, we talked 
Where do you want to go we here? Gotta, we got to talk about Woodward and Fear just because uh, it's the best, fastest selling book, adult title, mm-hmm. excuse me, Barnes & Noble said. Uh, Liz Harwell, Senior Director of Merchandising for Trade Books at Barnes & Noble, said it's the fastest selling adult title since our favorite, Ghost at a Watchman, oh, back yes. in July of 2014. <laughs> that was four years ago. Can you believe that? I cannot believe um, that. Simon & Schuster says there were uh, 750,000 copies sold through the day of publication alone. And that's a combined sales figure for print books, ebooks, audiobooks in all formats. I said at the time when Fire and Fury came out in January, I would be shocked if something beat that given mm-hmm. the sales velocity. Two things here. One, Woodward. We talked about this last week's show. Woodward is different. Yep. Um, let's see. Um, I'm Jake Kumsky Whitlock, who's the owner of Solid State Books, quoted in this article, I think has it right in one sentence. Woodward has the pedigree. That these yep. other Omarosa's book, Comey's book is as much self-serving as I think as anything. Michael Wolf's is gossipy. This is, you know, there's a precedent. We look to Woodward, I think, um, with a different kind of way than these other people. I don't know. I don't even – who else would you pick? I can't think – I don't even yeah. know who you would pick. Um, to do this at this point. So I think it's all crescendoing here with Woodward. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be fairly willing to stake my claim that this will be the book of this part of the Trump administration. This It feels like it encapsulates this oh, yeah. cycle. Now, mm-hmm. it, there's going to be another election after the midterms. I think there's this story isn't over. But for this part, it does seem to be the culmination of a lot that's gone on. Um, and 700. All, the other thing is I think Simon Schuster learned from higher loyalty and especially Fire and Fury, you need to have books in the stores. You cannot have too few because people couldn't find them. I think right. it ultimately did take some of the oxygen away from Fire and Fury sales. Um, but I don't have anything else to say about it. I'm going to read it in print eventually. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting around to it anytime soon, but I'm looking forward to it. Anything else that you thought were interesting here? No, just we heard interesting anecdotal evidence as well from folks on Insiders. And I talked to some bookseller friends who said they were just slinging a ton of copies yesterday morning. Um, Politics and Prose, their co-owner Bradley Graham said that at their locations across Washington, D.C., they had sold 60 copies in the opening two hours of the day and 300 more were on hold for customers who had pre-ordered it. Um, One of our Insiders members said that she was number like 1,026 on the hold list of it for her library. Mm. Um, Just in just tons of interest. And I agree with you that it is boiled down to Woodward's pedigree, um, the bona fides there and the degree of trust that readers and the like the general public have in his reporting of this story. He, he's in it to tell the story in a way that um, there's, I don't think there's any out, other motivation where you were um, listing, you know, yeah. Comey's in it for himself. Omarosa has a, a bone to pick for real reasons. Um, Michael Wolf is a gossipy kind of perspective on it. And here we have Woodward with gravitas. Yeah. Like, finally, finally, right. like, gravitas yeah. about something. Yeah, that's a great show title. Um, it says <laughs> it's the fastest selling book in Simon & Schuster Company history, which has been around a while. You don't have to, you don't have to tell you that. Oh. Um, it's going into its ninth printing, which will bring the total number of hardcover copies in print to 1.15 
million. So then you throw in audiobooks and ebooks on top of that. I mean, probably that means if once that selling goes out, you're probably looking at one and a half million sold across um, formats. So that will be hard to see how that's not the book of the year, but I was wrong already before with Fire and Fury. But uh, there is no, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of the next big nonfiction that I know of is Michelle Obama's memoir becoming coming out. But I think she's going to have a hard time competing with this. Like she's going to do well, but I'm going to go with, I mean, would she get, uh, she's not going to do what happened numbers. I wouldn't think, uh, but I don't know. That'll be interesting to follow Mm -hmm. uh, as well. But, um, I know a lot of you out there reading this, maybe we'll have to do a, once you and I have read it, we'll do an after show just to, to walk through a Mm -hmm. couple of things because I think it's, you know, it's the best-selling book of the year, and this particular moment of this topic is probably worth an additional few minutes of, of conversation on part. Not, it wouldn't be untoward to do something like that, I wouldn't think. No. Um, anything else? We we almost bumped this one last week. Let's cover it. Let's let's do this okay. one. Um, there was a data study of if you, you if you've listened to this show, you've probably seen them on Twitter, or other places. New York Times does this by the book column which asks authors, you know, people with coming out, it's, it's, it's their standing print interview format. And it's actually pretty good mm-hmm. as these things go. It's, it's asking them, people have a book out basically about their reading habits, what they like to read, what they read less. So, so maybe like a, a very sort of survey print version of my old reading live show. Not, not a bad way to put it. Um, <laughs> but USC Berkeley assistant professor, David Bammons, Bammons analysis shows did some data Let's do some data that male authors do recommend books data. by other men four times as often as they recommend books by women. Um, yeah, they're, yep. you know, not surprised. This we is, see this bubble up every now yep. and again when one of these buy the books episode, uh, comes out and people, people are counting. They'll say, look at this. It's yeah, all white this people. Been, it's all dudes. Like this, this is a known been, thing. Yeah, like, it's been ripe and waiting for someone to actually crunch the numbers for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and earlier this year, like I, I think the political moment that we're in is pushing for this, but also women in publishing are becoming very vocal about this, that it's unacceptable. Um, and for a male author, like to only list off and effectively promote books by other men. And they're not doing it viciously or maliciously it's most i think it's very they're very unaware that like oh every book that i'm naming as a book that i love happens to be a book by another man and how that contributes to this like very closed room that publishing has Mm -hmm. it came to a head earlier this year when lauren groff um, did buy the book for her new book florida and back in may um, one of the questions is you get to name like three authors living or dead that you'd invite to a a literary dinner party and lauren groff fired the first shot. I would invite every woman writer I have mentioned here, plus hundreds of others I did not have space to name. The conversation may eventually meander to touch on that most baffling of questions. When male writers list books they love or have been influenced by, as in this very column, week after week, why does it always seem as though they have only read one or two women in their lives? It can't be because men are inherently better writers than their female counterparts, and it isn't because male writers are bad people. We know they're not bad people. In fact, we love them. We love them because we have read 
read them. Something invisible and pernicious seems to be preventing even good literary men from reaching for books with women's names on the spines or from summoning women's books to mind when asked to do, when asked to list their influences. I wonder what such a thing could possibly be. And so citing Lauren Groff and then citing um, so some comments that Celeste Ng has made as well, uh, the researcher here pulled interviewees' responses to just the what's on your nightstand question, uh, which is a great way to like just pull one sample. And there's several questions asked, and it would be a lot yeah. of data to crunch if you pulled them all. And women in aggregate mentioned men and women authors about equally, um, while men in- mentioned other men four times as frequently as they mentioned books by women. Half of the 54 male authors mentioned no women writers. That's amazing. (laughs) It really is. And in addition, yeah. And then two of the all male recommendations came from women writers, um, which is disappointing, Mm. but that's how internalized sexism works. Um, well, I mean, you're right, but also like in a hundred, again, you could flip a coin four times and randomly get four heads. So like, True. I, I think true. I, it could be right too, but like if we didn't have the the larger thing, it, we could overlook or like attribute to randomness or like I'll read four books in a row by dudes, but I try to be pretty close to 50-50. The last four may not be indicative, but because there's this other story, it looks even worse, right? That there's mm-hmm. that two of the women yeah. named all, all men, but uh, that I don't know. I was trying to think again, you can never really do this accurately. If you would have asked me, okay, that this guy was going to do this study, what would my guesses be? What would my predictive power? I don't think Mm -hmm. I would have said half of the men mentioned no women. I don't think I would have said that. I think I would have been towards a quarter, but I I was surprised by the half. I have to, Mm -hmm. uh, I will admit to that. And that it's the 100 most recent columns. Like, so this is like basically in the last year or so. Yeah, they do once a week, um, twice a week. I'm not actually sure how often. I think it's once yeah, a week, I'm but I'm not, not sure. sure. Couple um, years, but. Yeah, in the last couple years, we'll say. So this is not like he's pulling from, you know, the even five years ago or the 90s or something. And some of these samples are before we ha- started having this conversation in publishing. Um, this, These are very recent examples. I probably would have guessed like maybe male authors are twice as likely to mention books by men. Um, the four times as much is really egregious. And I don't think there's much else to say about it other than I feel this way, the same way that I feel about having the data from the Vita study as like, well, now this thing that we've all felt is true. We have evidence really exists. Mm -hmm. Like this isn't a thing that women are making up. It's not made up that male authors recommend many more books by other men than they do books by women. Um, Here is data and maybe the success or like publicity that this study has gotten will spill David Bammon on to broaden the analysis and look at uh, all the questions or more of them going backwards. Or I hope he's tracking it going forward. Hmm as well, but really happy to see the numbers. It's nice to see the numbers. A couple of things related to what you just said that struck me too. And I saw one is, um, you know, this is what we called spotlighting, which is the opposite of gaslighting, right? Like that Mm -hmm. here's the, here's the thing put into plain terms that we can reference together as a truth about something women especially already knew, but put that to the side for a moment. Um, the other thing is I think you can also see the limits of, 
I don't know, of, of, well, not the limits, but like where the water's edge is for a publication like the New York Times, like Vita Counts, mm. in coverage just because you see the breakdown of 54 men and 46 women over the last 100. That looks pretty close like uh, Pamela Paul or whoever's in charge of booking these is looking right. for 50-50. Mm-hmm. So they're doing what they can. They say, okay, we want, we want half men, half women. Um, I'm, maybe it's not that simple if there's, there's transgendered or people are gender non-binary in the mix. I'm not sure. But even with that kind of editorial, I don't know, measurement or guideline in terms of who actually gets the space, still you get a wacky, mm-hmm. out of, not, not wacky, out of whack um, result. So, you know, like, like the limits of Vita we talked a little bit before, what's underlying this? Like just 50-50 representation of who gets the space isn't going to solve this particular problem, right? I mean, it's going to be right. something else of which I don't know. Yeah. The, like the big thing that solves it is an eventual cultural shift away from this gra- built-in idea that yeah. we have that stories men tell are stories that are universal and stories women tell are just stories for women. And that's mm-hmm. how you end up in a place where men only read books by men, but women can list off books by men and women. Um, in terms of like, I'm going to say this jokingly, but the more that I think about it, the more I think they should actually do it is maybe the New York times should only have women writers and buy the books for several years. Um, like that would be, (laughs) that would be one way to do it. Um, and I think if you're a publicist, that's especially working a wonderful with the, point. I did not even think about that. This is where I have landed is that if you are a publicist who works with authors of the stature who get invited to do buy the books, like it's not, you know, like Pamela Paul's not emailing Lauren Groff directly <laughs> no, about no. this. She's, Probably not. I mean, she's in contact. She's in contact with publicity yeah. departments. And so if you are in a position as a publicist where you're arranging these kinds of features for your authors, they don't have to be features as big as by the books, but it really matters if it's a feature as big as by the books, like as widely read, that you can encourage your authors to recommend it diversely and inclusively. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they don't read diversely and inclusively enough to do that, you might encourage them to take a pause. Like it's a bad look. Yeah. George Pelicanos got raked over the coals and rightfully so for just like two weeks ago, only listing books by men. And then he referred to one book by a woman and told a joke about it. Like this is not how you want your authors mm-hmm. presenting themselves to the world ever, but especially right now, like it's just not going to be tolerated anymore. So I think that's a real opportunity to contribute to making the changes that if you're in a position where you're setting up authors for publicity moments where they are talking about other people's books, they need to be mindful and intentional about the books that they're selecting. If your author gets invited on the Today Show to talk about the great books of summer, you better have this conversation with them. That's right. That's a thousand percent right. We know enough now PR people should be cognizant enough to say, you know, there's a, there's some, there's rope on this stage for this, my author to go out and hang themselves with. Um, not to mention right. it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if, um, someone who was going to name four dudes, either a had to re- had the shock of recognition that they were about to do that. Right. And maybe if they are well-intentioned to think of spend the extra beat, we've talked about this before for a lot of people, it's the mm-hmm. extra beat just to think about it. I think that would be – I think if if the PR person had gone back, if we could A-B test the universe, we could go back in our DeLorean and give these dudes a nudge and say, hey, just so you know, you might want to think about this. I wonder if that would change – the would that move the needle at all? 
like, is it that, is it that sort of offhand and unthinking that just like, oh, let me think about this would move the needle at all? Or is it not? I'd be fascinated to know of either of those outcomes. My suspicion is it wouldn't fix it all the way, but I don't think it would be as egregious because people just don't think about their own reading that way. And uh, people, men, let me just be clear about that, really don't think about their reading that way. Um, and, and as I think that's Groff that you were quoted saying, like, they're not bad people necessarily. It's just that they're allowed to think and read and experience the world across a, a, in a certain way that is blind to the, mm-hmm. the reality of what they're actually reading and consuming and, and, uh, and then, and then promoting, frankly, cause that's the other thing. Like this yeah, becomes you know, a megaphone like, too. Right. And frankly, you know, I wonder if there are conversations being had about this at the New York Times and what the New York Times might think about yeah. the possibility of issuing some either editorial guidelines or some standards about this. Like we are not, Book Riot is not the New York Times. We get to make some yeah. decisions about the ways that we do things, but we would not publish an interview where a male author recommended 20 books by men yeah. and no books Never by would women. appear on the um, site. And we would, Never would happen. Right. And we would tell you that up front Mm -hmm. as well. Like here is like, here are our standards and you can abide by them or you can not have access to our platform. Um, And I don't know that the New York Times would be willing to take that kind of stand or have those kinds of fights with, um, with publishers potentially, but it would be a power move to do it. Yeah, it would. It would. Um, Yeah. I wonder... I'm not really. This isn't Pamela. I don't. I don't. This isn't Pamela Paul's problem to solve. I think, in an interesting way, by making it a fifty-fifty proposition in terms of who gets the spots, it is in its own way throwing a spotlight on this habit of mind that needs attention. Mm-hmm. You know, in a yeah, there is something to be said for. You know, what, what's a, a fool knows when to shut up, and a, the, the one that doesn't know when to show up shows themselves to be a fool. Like by by having these people show their ass a little bit, would we be having this conversation, or is a diversity requirement kind of not 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 hiding the problem, but does it not have the same impact? I wonder to just sort of let the people see that this is the kind of recommendation that goes on. I, I that never really occurred to me before, but what work is being done by Saying okay, we're going to have fifty-fifty. I guess is here's my question: Is Pamela Paul happy to see this this counting being done? She's like, finally, someone noticed, mm, mm-hmm. or yeah, not I, happy I about it? Because I could see a way. She's like, yes, finally, someone noticed. I've been sort of setting this up, or or not setting this up, mm-hmm. but I've been noticing this too. Um, but you're right. I mean, the other thing you could do is, yeah, you could have a a condition of getting the platform is, you know, we're, yeah, we're just well, not going to run with all guys. Uh, yeah. and I'll talking about I don't really expect to see that from the New York Times, given like Book Riot has a very explicit social justice mission. Yeah, no, Part no. of our mission is very explicitly social justice and the, a, a giant news organization has some difficulties in taking that kind of perspective, yeah. um, some resistance to taking that kind of perspective or agenda, but it's, it, it's an option and maybe not the New York times, but maybe you're listening to this and you have a blog mm. or, um, a smaller publication that does have a political social perspective and you run author interviews. This is something to consider. Yeah. Like if you touch forward facing pieces of book promotion, lists of books that are recommended, all of the above, you have an opportunity to contribute something to the way this conversation happens. Yeah. Well put. 
Um, anything else we want to do? Feels like a word oh, done. Let's end, let's there. end there. Yeah, I've had all my thoughts for the yeah, day. Yeah, that's a, that's all of the thoughts. Uh, you can find show notes to this and all back episodes of the Book Riot podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. Uh, you can shoot us an email podcast at bookriot.com. Thoughts, feelings, comments about things we've talked about. I especially was interested in. What was I especially interested in? I can't remember it now. Oh, foils and waterstones. Um, if you have. Well, any experience. Uh, I, I, went, I bought books at a Waterstones ooh, 21 years ago. So it's been a while since I've been in Waterstones. Um, uh, and what, what that does or doesn't mean or may or may not be analogous to things going on in the world of uh, U.S. Yeah. book selling. Anything else we want the people? I guess, uh, well, you know, if you're mad at me for saying that they should only run female authors for a while in the New York Times, Jeff is going to be the one who reads your email. So and let me tell you, I'm going to be super that. receptive to that feedback. <laughs> it's going to go great for you. It's going to go really well. Um, also, thanks to so many of you who have um, have checked out TBR. We talked about it for a long time last yes. week. Um, really cool to see people interested in and got some emails about... Uh, it, you know, praise and some ideas and really, really fun to get that out into the world a little bit. If you want to go check it out, mytbr.co. Rebecca, I hope you guys stay dry as much as is possible down there. Don't float away, y'all. I'll try not to. Okay. Talk to you next week. Have a good one.